Well, if everybody wants to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 11, today we'll be in Acts chapter 11, hopefully get as much of Acts chapter 12 covered as we possibly can. Uh, last week, for those of you who were here, um, which looks about like half of you, since my family's here, and they weren't here last week, but last week we looked at Acts chapter 10, and there what we saw happening was we saw God giving um, actual visible proof uh, to Peter and to the other six um, Jewish Christians that had gone with him uh, to Cornelius' house. He gave them visible proof that God was in fact receiving Gentiles into his flock. Um, and God confirmed this to Peter and to, to those with him. And if you remember in the pouring out of the Spirit where uh, these Gentiles were actually able to speak in tongues just as um, the apostles and the disciples were at Pentecost. Um, this is how God confirmed it for them, that he gave them the exact same gift uh, that he had given to the Jewish Christians there at Pentecost. And that's what we saw in Acts chapter 10. And with that, with this event, with this um, visible manifestation of God's acceptance of the, of the Gentiles, uh, what we saw was really the fruition of God's command from Acts chapter 1 verse 8 um, coming together. If, if y'all remember, I've, I've tried to repeat it as many times as possible. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. We saw that uh, occur at Pentecost um, as they... Uh, as they preached uh, first in tongues and then Peter to the people. And then we saw in Acts chapter 8, uh, the gospel go to Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts chapter 10, we saw um, Jesus' command for them to go even to the remotest parts of the earth. Um, We saw that being fulfilled. And so as Peter saw uh, the, the undeniable manifestation of God's working in the Gentiles, he saw that God had accepted them Uh, into the people of God, Um, he did uh, what was right to do and went ahead and baptized them. Cornelius was baptized, um, as well as all those who who believed the preaching of uh, Peter's gospel message. And so Peter gave them the new covenant sign, uh, which is baptism. And so that's what we saw in chapter 10. Uh, What's going to happen now in chapter 11 is basically word has gotten back to Jerusalem of, of all these things that happened uh, between Peter and these Gentiles. Uh, the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem heard that the Gentiles had received the Spirit, and they were really taken aback uh, by everything that transpired between Peter and Cornelius and these Gentiles. And so um, let's dive in in chapter 11, verse 1, and, and see the reaction to the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem when they hear about what happened with the Gentiles Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? And so just stop right there and notice that even what they're not saying at this point, they're not saying, Peter, we cannot believe that Uh, Gentiles were being saved. Um, That's not really even their concern right here. Instead, they actually can't believe that Peter would go in and eat with Gentiles. 
in all of what Peter is going to tell them, they're surprised and taken aback by the fact that Peter ate with Gentiles, um, which is which just brings out again that the the great divide between the Jew and Gentile, even at this point, um, this great division between Jew and Gentile, really. Um, is just so pervasive in the minds of, of the Jews um, that it actually here we see it overshadowing the fact that God is saving the world. Uh, Peter comes back with this news that Gentiles are being saved and they're still concerned about the fact that Peter's eating with the Gentiles. And so it, it just seems it's almost uh, humorous to, to an extent that they're so caught up with, with those uh, the, the rules of separation that they don't even, at first, uh, seem to be concerned about the most important thing that's happening here uh, with Cornelius and these Gentiles. And so what we see, really, uh, we talked about this last week, but what we have in Acts chapter 11 is basically um, Peter retelling everything that happened in Acts chapter 10. And he's doing this because he's, he's basically having to, to give a defense uh, to the, the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. He's having to explain to them um, what happened, you know, because they're really taken aback that, that Peter was doing all this with the Gentiles. And so what we have in Acts chapter 11 is Peter giving a play-by-play a recounting of everything that we really looked at um, last week in Acts chapter 10. He's going to replay um, the angelic visit to Cornelius that the angel told Cornelius to go seek out Peter. He's going to replay for them uh, the, the vision of a sheet that Peter had come down to him, that sheet that had clean and unclean animals. Um, he's going to recount the uh, Cornelius in his house having received uh, that same gift that they received um, at the beginning. So instead of basically recounting everything that we looked at last week, um, let's jump down uh, to the very end of, of Peter's recounting of all of these events. And uh, let's just dive in Acts chapter 11, verse 17 here. Where here it says, uh, this is the words of Peter. Peter said, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And so after uh, Peter gets back to Jerusalem and, is, and explains uh, play by play everything that happened, um, the, 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 the Jewish Christians there finally um, uh, concede to Peter that, okay, obviously it was okay that you went into fellowship with these Gentiles, being that it was so obvious that God had directed all of this. Um, it was obviously God's will, God's working, that these Gentiles um, were being saved, that they were being accepted by God. And so they finally grant that it was okay uh, for Peter to go in with them. Um, but what I wanted to note, and what I wanted to, to, to look at more significantly in, in verse 18 here, is look at the language used of these Jewish Christians uh, in Jerusalem to describe God's working with the Gentiles. Because verse 18 says it like this. They said, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And so first... Um, he says, he, he, in reference to this conversion, he uses the word repentance. Repentance. And 
Um, we've talked about this many times already, uh, this word in the book of Acts, but this is one of those things that are worth stopping and recounting. We, we can't discuss this um, too many times. But in the Bible, um, repentance and faith are, are really the two primary words used to describe uh, a true conversion, <laughs> repentance and faith. And uh, repentance and faith is, is easily understood as they are two distinct words with two distinct meanings, um, but we can see that they really are um, both uh, necessary in a true conversion. Uh, they're really, uh, it, it's helpful to understand them as being, as it's said very often, two sides of the same coin. The coin is conversion, uh, but the, the, the coin has two sides, repentance and faith. You can't have one without the other. Um, you, can't, uh, you can't come to Christ by faith unless you have first turned from your sin. And whatever it is that you worship before Christ, you can't come to him without having turned from that. And you're not going to turn from your sin without having this new um, object of faith and worship, which is Christ. You see, so both are, are absolutely necessary. Yes, Mike? So, in other words, the, you got to change your way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And thinking in the long terms of thinking like Christ. Yeah, which refers more specifically to repentance, That's which just literally means it. change of mind. Yeah. You know, yeah, so you're changing your mind about everything. Yeah. You know, some, seem, some uh, actually kind of abuse that word Um, and turn it into just an intellectual assent of, okay, yes, now I agree that the gospel is true. Um, That's not what the Bible means when it uses the word repentance. It means a change about everything. Not just, yeah, total. Total conversion. Which includes, of course, your view of your sin, your view of who Christ was, your rejection of the gospel. You're changing your mind about everything. Mm -hmm. You're submitting yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a biblical repentance. And so... Um, yeah, I like to stop on that word and just reiterate with you that repentance is most definitely necessary. Um, there, there's huge movements of um, uh, teachers who explicitly say that repentance is not necessary for salvation. Um, that is, I mean, patently false in so many contexts. I mean, Jesus says, Luke 13, unless you repent, you will perish. You know, so um, Jesus is explicit on the necessity of repentance. Uh, when it comes to salvation. So I hope that, that everybody fully grasps um, the biblical use of those words. Um, you know, if, in our new membership books, we pass out that, those books that called What is the Gospel, where it really deals with the meanings of these words because we want everyone to be fully grounded um, in the, these primary words that the Bible uses to describe salvation. It's repentance and faith, right? So I hope, yes, Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, um, you bring up a good point, Chris, because, um, you know, it's so, for some reason, you know, it's like evangelicals have this disease where they cannot use words from the Bible. <laughs> they have to come up, they think they have to come up with different words, mm-hmm. like being close to Jesus, you know, or far from Jesus. I mean, I've heard pastors describe salvation that way, mm-hmm. you know, which to me, is already kind of a red flag. They're trying to stay away from the buzzwords, you know, mm-hmm. probably what they would consider to be maybe politically incorrect words like repent. Right. You know, but it's so important to use biblical vocabulary right. when we talk, you know, about Christianity. Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, that's right. What would be maybe another misleading um, description of, of how many uh, describe uh, this, the conversion process? I know, I've, you know, I know we, by tradition we've all heard the, you know, ask Jesus into your heart. Mm-hmm. That's pretty, I mean, you, yeah, I've asked Jesus into my heart. You know, you try to share the gospel with somebody. Oh, yeah, I've done that. I've asked Jesus into my heart. Well, first of all, what does that mean? You know, the Bible never describes asking Jesus into your heart as the means of, of gaining salvation. You know, the Bible doesn't even explicitly uh, make it a prayer. You know, it's an action of putting your faith in Christ, which you can do without walking down an aisle, without repeating a prayer. This is an action you do in your heart where you, you repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. That's basically why we don't need, uh, see the necessity to do the altar call. You know, because you're going to put your faith in Christ just through the preaching of the word. You know, God will change your heart right where you're sitting. You know, you can repent right then and there. You know, that's, that's really how that can go down. Um, so repentance and faith. Um, yes, biblical words, very important to use and to, to, uh, to describe to people what, what does the Bible mean by repentance? What does the Bible mean by faith? You know, and usually these days in the Bible Belt, it seems you're basically having to convince people that it doesn't mean you just simply assent to the truth of the gospel. You actually have to put your faith in that and turn from your sins and put your faith in that and your trust. That's the biblical account of conversion. Yes, Wally? Well, I encountered several people that claim, you know, their, I think their belief is that repentance is just saying you're sorry, you know, but not really any change in your life. You know, just like right. To repent is more like... Gee, I'm sorry. Go on, do the same thing. Right. Yeah. With no heartfelt change, it's going to cause a a, a difference. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Well, I was just going to say what Wally was saying. You know, you do experience that a lot in today's culture, especially where they say, you know, I'm sorry, and oh, I got to get my life right, and you know, I hear that over and over, and I even said that before I was truly converted, but you know, I always um, stress, you know, to the person that's professing that you know about a godly sorrow you know mm-hmm. not that you're sorry because you got caught or sorry because you've been just living wayward life but are, are you sorry that you've sinned against a holy and just God mm-hmm. and a godly sorrow brings forth repentance mm-hmm. a worldly sorrow we know doesn't it brings right. death really but right. anyway yeah yeah that's what he was saying I, I think you got a contrast here between verse three this verse mm-hmm. the previous preconceived notion was you can't, you know, the old faith, the religious practice, you can't associate with it. Mm-hmm. And then you come to verse 17, you see that repentance, a change, mm-hmm. accepting new criteria, God's word and truth. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's even evidenced in this passage. Yeah, some things are hard um, to accept, you know. You say you got to change your mind, accept everything the word says, everything that God, God is now Lord. Um, yeah, some things are hard to accept. Um so, okay, so let's just, because uh, I'm going to, the, the verse actually takes it a step farther than even uh, talking about as, as significant as what repentance is in the conversion process. Um, notice also uh, what these uh, Jewish Christians uh, describe repentance as being, because they also say here that it's, it's stated to be a gift of God. Um, did you see that? God has granted, God has given to the Gentiles, uh, repentance that leads to life. Um, now, that's, that's really an amazing statement uh, when you come to think of the fact that, um, as we said, um, if you're telling somebody what they must do to be saved, you tell them, you must repent. 
you must uh, put your faith, you must put your trust in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Um, so, yes, the repentance and faith are actions of man. Uh, the catch with that is, and the problem with that, is that man in this fallen state is unable to do those things that please God, Romans 8 says. The man in the flesh, the man who is, is dead in his transgressions and sins, cannot please God. He cannot do what God's law says. He cannot do these things. Um, and so, this here we're really seeing the grace of God in that God has given to the Gentiles repentance. It's a gift of God. It's a gift that God... Uh, distributes according to his sovereign grace, according to his election, according to his mercy and his grace. Um, repentance is a gift. Um, let's look at just a couple texts on the, in the scriptures that really reiterates this truth. Turn to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. And one student that we were pleading with, you know, he, he, he didn't want to leave, but yet he kept saying, but I don't get it. Uh-huh. You know, but he didn't want to leave, but yet he said, I, I can't, I just can't turn from these things, like my sin or whatever. But then he was saying, but then he didn't get the gospel or the things of God. And I remember well, before leaving, I said, you won't. You're not going to get it. You need to cry out to God that he'll open your eyes. Right. Because you can't even change yourself. Yeah. I said, you can't even change yourself. Just cry out to him. Start with that and say, Lord, make me desire you. Mm-hmm. You know, make me want to do these things. Give me a new heart. You do it, Lord, please. But just beg him for mercy. Mm-hmm. And watch God change you, change yeah. you, you know. And it's really, it's kind of hard sometimes when you share the gospel. It's strange um, because, I, I, in the same way, like, centered. me growing up um, in a Christian home, I, I knew God's will. I knew right and wrong. I knew what his law was. I knew what he required of me. And I, and I couldn't do those things. You know, I was, I was still trapped with my sin. I wanted to repent. You know, I had some sense of worldly sorrow, of course, you know, in 2 Corinthians 7. But um, I, I knew these things were wrong, and I wanted to stop doing them, but I couldn't. You know, and until I remember that, that night when all of a sudden the Spirit showed up, and all of a sudden I actually had the ability to repent. You know, it was just a gift of God. It was something I tried to work up forever, and I couldn't do it. You know, I failed miserably. Um, so yes, the grace I think of God. That's even in our sanctification too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. When we're, when we're fighting the, you know, the flesh. The flesh yeah. mm-hmm. We looked at that yesterday, right? In Philippians, work out your salvation. Yeah. It's God who's working in you yeah, to. So I don't have the power of my own, even though I'm, I've been reborn. Mm-hmm. I don't have the power of my own to, to fight those sins. I got I got to have Him mm-hmm. fight the battle for me. Mike, you have some. Well, that's why Jesus reiterates, he, he stresses that point, you must be born again, <coughs> over and over. That's right. You must be born again. That's right, you must be born again. You, can, you cannot do these things. You can't even see the kingdom of God. And even there, he says, the spirit blows where he wishes. This is not something you get to decide. You don't get to direct the wind your way so that you can be born again. Mm-hmm. The, re- the result of, of the spirit blowing is repentance, is faith. Yeah, let's read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. There it says, The Lord's bondservants must not be quarrelsome, but be kind. Oh, sorry, did I give you guys a reference? I heard some pages turning. 2 Timothy 2.24. It says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance 
leading to the knowledge of the truth. Right? So there we see um, your, what your prayer, what your hope should be as you're, cor- as you're trying to correct those in opposition, those who are opposed to the gospel and the truth of God's word. Your prayer is that perhaps God would grant them, give them repentance. Right? That's why... Even in that, as it's talking about the Lord's bondservant, it's not to be quarrelsome, we're, we're to be able, we're to be patient when wronged. We can be patient um, knowing that all of these things are um, up to the sovereign grace of God. You know, we can rest in that. We present the truth, we do it lovingly, we preach the truth in love, and, it, and if God's willing, he'll grant repentance, you know, through the truth um, that we're presenting. Um, maybe, so... so so in our text already in Acts 11, we saw repentance as a gift. Here we see repentance as a gift in 2 Timothy. Uh, what about faith? The other side of the coin. It's also described as a gift of God. Uh, turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Philippians 1, 29. Philippians 1, 29 says this. For to you... It has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And so here we see the same word. It's been granted for Christ's sake. It's granted is just the word didomi. It just means to give. It's something God grants or gives. It's been granted for you not only to believe in him. So there we see how faith, your belief is something granted to you by God. Um, that's the gift of God, your belief. And notice that what's additionally given to us also at our conversion. It's not only given to you to believe. Your faith is not only a gift. So is suffering. It's also been given to you to suffer as well. For, for, for Christ's sake. Thereby being worth it. So I you know? Vengeance's mind says Mike. Vengeance's mind says you. Um, okay, one more text. And I think this may be the most helpful text. Maybe the most significant on this issue. Because um, if you want to go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, what's so significant about this verse is everybody knows it already. Everybody knows Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You can be on the streets um, sharing the gospel with, with almost any unbeliever, and they're going to have heard Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. They may even know it uh, by memory. Um, most everyone in the church has at least heard the verse. Uh, but notice what it's saying. Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? Amen. Everyone says, Amen. Amen. And it's, it goes on to say, And that is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Now the question is, what is not of yourselves? And what is the gift of God? That's the question. Is it, is it the grace that's not of yourself that's the gift of God? Is it the salvation that you receive that's not of yourself the gift of God? Or is it the faith um, that is not of yourselves but is, but is of the gift of God? What's the antecedent of, of that when it says that is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God? Grace. See, Grace. All of the above. Yeah. See, all of the above is, is correct. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, it, we can tell just by the, you know, the, the Greek language has genders. The Greek language has genders given to each word here. Um, Grace is in the feminine. Salvation is in the masculine. Uh, faith is again in the feminine. And to reference all of those different genders, um, Paul uses a neuter word, that. Referencing everything he previously said is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Everything from start to finish when it comes to the grace, your salvation, and your faith is a gift of God. That's amazing. 
Because the take-home from that is the fact that the only reason you're right here, um, right now, is because of God's sovereign grace. You don't believe, you have not repented, you have not put your faith in Christ because you are any better than the people who don't believe that have heard the same gospel you heard. That's what we mean when we talk about grace. You're saved by grace. Grace doesn't make you savable and you do the work of believing and repenting. Grace is what gives you repentance and faith. And so, you know, soli deo gloria. You know, the only reason we're here is not because of us. The only reason we're going to be in heaven and people are going to be in hell is because God's grace, not because of us. You know, so that's something to, to, to be uh, joyous about. You know, the doctrines of grace, and we talk about the doctrines of grace, a lot of times it causes friction and conflict. For us, we're like, we don't get it, man. This is the, most, this is the greatest thing we've ever heard. Without it, we would not be Christians. We would not be saved. We would love our sin. We would continue in sin, but God has changed our hearts. This is why we, this is why we praise him. Um, and so, back to the text, maybe, should we? Um, and so, what's happening back in Acts chapter 11? Um, so, this grace, um, the whole church in Jerusalem is recognizing as having been, give to, been given to Cornelius, um, to all of the company with him there at his house. Um, they've seen the grace of God. They've seen that God has granted to them repentance leading to life. And, and what we're seeing here is the full inclusion and acceptance um, of the Gentiles into the church of God. And now as, as sweet as that sounds, we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts that there's still very many details to be worked out as far as how is this going to work? How are the Jewish Christians going to worship with the Gentile Christians and you know all the, 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 the dietary laws and the, and, and the Sabbaths and all these things that, that were in the Old Covenant, how are they going to... Um, convert over to the new covenant with these Gentiles being there. Um, we're going to get to all those issues as we work through Acts, but just be aware that they're coming. Everything it wasn't solved um, with the speaking of tongues at Cornelius' house. There's still going to be a lot of details to work out um, with the inclusion of the Gentiles. But for now, let's go on. Uh, let's finish up uh, the chapter 11, uh, back at verse 19. Uh, what, what we're going to see here is, is Luke is actually... Um, going back in time, um, he's going to go back to recall for us some more details in the spread of the gospel that was a result of the, that really began with this persecution in uh, Acts chapter 8 with the persecution of Stephen. You know, when we, when we originally looked at um, Acts chapter 8, we saw the persecution broke out that began with the stoning of Stephen. And, and, and Luke went on to, to give us the details of, of how Philip was pushed out of Jerusalem due to persecution. And we saw his evangelism. We saw the, the, the gospel go to Judea and Samaria and, you know, the Simon the sorcerer and all of that that we talked about. Now he's going to go back to that same time period and discuss for us and reveal to us uh, another parallel account of what was also going on at the same time as a result of the same persecution. And so let's jump in here at verse 19. It says... So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, they made their way to Phoenicia and to Cyprus and to Antioch. And th- these are just um, cities and regions that are, that are well north of Jerusalem in the area of Syria. And, and they were going there speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Verse 20, but... But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
right? I like the description of their, what they were preaching, the Lord Jesus, right? They're just preaching the Lordship of Christ to these Gentiles there. Verse 22 says, the news about them, uh, oh wait, sorry, verse 21, uh, and, the, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church down in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he began to encourage them with all resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Um, so, so as I said, what we have here is this parallel account of another outreach that was going on to the Gentiles that was really parallel to what Philip was doing. Um, here, uh, it's, we're in the area of Syria, and what we're seeing is this church, a Gentile church being planted in the city of Antioch. Antioch um, was actually the, the very capital city, uh, uh, the capital of the Roman province of Syria. This is a prominent Gentile uh, city. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. That's, where, that's how far this persecution led the church to spread the gospel. And so what's happening here is due to all of the conversions, all of the, all of the abundance of growth in the church, um, the church in Jerusalem, the apostles, send Barnabas. Y'all remember what Barnab- what's Barnabas' name mean? Anybody remember that? The son of encouragement. They send the son of encouragement up to these these brand new converted Gentiles and uh, Barnabas witnesses all of these um, conversions of these Gentiles. And there's so many, in fact, at this church in Antioch that Barnabas needs some help. Barnabas is going to need some assistance in in discipling these um, new converts. But as I said, this is like 300 miles away from Jerusalem. So where is Barnabas going to find um, someone that far away from Jerusalem uh, who is gifted enough, willing enough, um, called and available to minister to Gentile converts that far away from Jerusalem. Well, verse 25, if you notice, is going to be the answer to that. It says, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. You remember, we we left Saul. We left Saul um, when last time we saw him, he was actually in Jerusalem and the Hellenistic Jews there were, were debating him and getting stirred up again, just like they did with Stephen before they killed him. And so remember the, the, the disciples sent um, Paul or Saul back home to Tarsus. Remember? So that's where he's been. And so here Barnabas goes and seeks out Saul. He seeks him out knowing he's in Tarsus. Verse 26 says, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so as I said, here again, we're getting caught back up with with Paul. We all love Paul. I always want to know what's going on with Paul. Luke left him for too long, but now he's back. Now we know what's going on with Paul. Um, And first of all, notice the primacy of what's going on, what's primary in this brand new church, this, this brand new church of Gentile converts, um, what's going on is teaching. Teaching. This church was continually devoting themselves to the apostolic teaching. And that's so important because, I mean, just as we said um, in the sermon that we did on Acts uh, 2.42, that the, the apostolic teaching, um, the interpretation of the apostles and the recalling of everything that Jesus taught them, 
is the foundation for everything else that the church is going to do. That's why if you're starting a church, you need to be teaching. If you have disciples, brand new converts, you need to be teaching. Right? You don't throw them out there to the wolves. You don't throw them out there, you know. You teach them. You train them. You, you interpret the Bible for them. You explain to them the things of Christ. And you explain to them the Old Testament. And everything that God was doing. You train them. You disciple them. And then they'll be ready to rightfully worship God. Because who knows what this, this uh, Gentile church looked like when Barnabas showed up. You know, you just had all these brand new Gentile converts to the Lord. You know, Barnabas probably had his work cut out for him. You know, I'm sure the worship was nothing like uh, what their worship was back home in Jerusalem. You know, I'm sure he was using the regulative principle, you know, and, and trying, to, trying to sharpen the worship and, and just uh, uh, make it more God-glorifying for these Gentile converts who, who probably didn't know um, the Torah. They probably didn't have the Pentateuch. You know, they probably didn't know these things. Um, so uh, that's what the job was for them to do. It was to teach um, Luke also mentions for us here that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. They were first called Christians here at this Gentile church in Antioch. And, and all of the com- commentators point out, and they discuss this point, is that um, this was probably, being called Christians, probably not a self-designation of the early church. It's probably not a name they came up with. The reason they say that is because uh, we never see, even in the, even in the New Testament, uh, we never see the, the, the believers referring to themselves as Christians. It's always something that the outsiders are calling them. Right? That's, how, that's always the reference of the outsiders uh, calling them. Um, it could have been a derogatory um, title. You know, the, the, there's, they're not, there's not a lot of clarity on that. But one thing I know for sure is that this church, um, this brand new church was on track. Become, I, I, I can see that just in the name of, of what people call them. They call them Christians. You know, so whatever they were getting from these, this new sect and this new group of people gathering, they knew they were Christ-centered. They called them Christians. You know, that's a, that's a beautiful and very appropriate title of the church. Before you're anything else, you're going to be a Christian. You know, before any other, you know, side doctrine, you, you must be a Christian. And that, that should be primacy, the primacy of Christ in your worship and uh, in what people see in you. Okay, and so um, here, now beginning in verse 27, this chapter is going to end. Any questions so far before we even start a new little section here? You guys okay? Because here what we're going to see is a, a very interesting account of a prophecy that takes place in this Gentile church here in Antioch. Uh, Let's begin, I'll read in verse 27, see what this prophecy is all about. It says, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And so right off the bat in this church at Antioch, uh, we see the grace of God working. 
Because all we've been seeing prior to this account is distinction, um, animosity, differences, separation between Jew and Gentile. And now already <coughs> these Gentiles, brand new Gentile converts, are already willing to reach into their pockets, take whatever they can, whatever they can afford, and they're sending this to Jewish believers down in Judea. Now that's the grace of God when, when you're already willing to jump into your pocketbook. That's a, that's a beautiful sign of the grace of God working in these uh, Gentiles. Um, we know this wouldn't have happened um, if there wasn't, had, hadn't been that wall of separation broken down and, and they shared this union with Christ. I mean, they, they understand that the body of Christ is universal. You know, if they're true believers down in Jerusalem, they're going to help them. They're going to sacrifice for them. Um, and so what, what we also see here that's interesting is that uh, it seems that these churches in and around Jerusalem and in the Judea area, uh, they seem to stay broke. Um, and so when something like this happened where there's a, a, a famine that occurs, I mean, it's going to doubly affect them. They're going to doubly suffer. And so um, what we see in the, in the, the most probable uh, reason that these churches in the Jerusalem area stay broke is that um, these, all of these people in these churches, these ex-Jews, have separated themselves from uh, Judaism. They, they, would have let, they would have maybe been kicked out of the synagogue if they didn't just leave altogether by some point. Um, and leaving the synagogue would have cost you your family. It would have cost you most likely your job if your boss was a, a, jealous, zoo, a, a zealous Jew, which is very likely. Um, yeah, so all of these things would have affected the life in, in, of these early Christians. It would not have been an easy um, step to, to step away from Judaism uh, to the new covenant. This was not easy for them. And so as we see, as this church is always struggling in Jerusalem and Judea, we constantly see them being the recipients of, of help from the Gentile churches. Um, you, I mean, you remember just in 2 Corinthians what we saw with Paul making another collection. right? We saw that in all those chapters in, in, in 2 Corinthians that Paul was uh, once again helping the, the, the Jews down in this area. Um, so besides just the financial issues here in Jerusalem, the, the church really seems to be in a very good place right now. Uh, we, we have Peter ministering around Jerusalem. We have Paul um, doing his thing up in the northern regions amongst the Gentiles, the people he's been called to minister to. He's up there uh, exploding and in the church. The Gentiles are now being included. The things are really good for the church right now. And uh, with that being said, we'll move into chapter 12 where the tide is going to change. The tide is going to definitely change for the church. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And so first, um, to determine who's this Herod, this is Herod Agrippa I. Um, he just so happens to be the grandson of Herod the Great. If you remember from Matthew chapter 2, you remember Herod the Great who was trying to thwart uh, the, the birth of the Messiah by killing all the, the children to and under. This, this grandson of Herod the Great really seems to be trying to carry on the family uh, name there. Um, so... Here, what Herod Agrippa is trying to do is he's basically trying to appease the Jews. 
He had a very good relationship with the Jews. Uh, he actually had, I think it was his grandmother, it was named Mary, Mariama. She was a Jew, and so he had a lot of connections with them. He was really just a people pleaser. No matter where he went, he tried to uh, please the people. When he was in Jerusalem where he lived, he kept the feasts, he kept all the days, he kept all of these uh, Jewish festivals. Um, so here he's just trying to uh, win over the people that are under him by killing, uh, by beheading James. And so who's this James? Well, this James, it's not uh, the brother of the Lord. It's not the James who wrote the epistle of James. This is James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. If you remember him from the Gospels, um, this James is one, is one of uh, what a lot call, he was one of the inner circle of the twelve. There's Peter, James, and John. Um, these three uh, really got uh, just a special grace from God, special treatment. He brought them places. You remember, these are the three that went with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He took them, those three up, you know, and, and they seen Christ's glory there. Um, so that's this James, the son of Zebedee. Um, another side note, maybe, that, that I think is helpful, just on, on seeing the execution of James, the apostle here, what we don't see following his execution is we do not see him uh, being replaced uh, as we did with Judas. Right? You remember with Judas, when he killed himself, he betrayed the Lord, he killed himself. They replaced him with Matthias back in Acts chapter 1. Um, but from that point on, there's no replacing of the, the, the foundational apostles. Right? This apostle's killed. We don't see anywhere where they replace him. There's no, you know, there's no casting of lots, none of these decisions to be made. Um, so what we take from that is, is as the apostles have laid the foundation, uh, they're going to leave us the word of God, everything that they recalled from Jesus, all his teachings, and all of these things. That's what they leave for the church. The office of the apostle, capital A, does not continue on throughout the church. We never see the apostles um, handing down their authority, handing down their throne. You know, that doesn't happen. I just thought it was interesting to note that. Because there's many, you know, you'll see apostolic churches, you know, what's funny about the apostolic churches that you see, they're always heretical. I thought you were apostolic, you know, but they can't even get the apostolic teaching right. Um, so, uh, Herod, uh, Herod here doesn't stop with the beheading of James. That doesn't seem to be enough for him. That doesn't please him. Look at verse chapter 3. It says, when, uh, uh, verse 3, I mean, it says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, referencing the beheading of James, he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Now why, why do you think that it was so important and, and, and necessary for Herod to, to assign what ends up being 16 guards to Peter, why does why does he need why does Peter need sixteen guards to to guard him in the prison? Any guesses on that? Well, because of the previous news on the day of the crucifixion of Christ and he was placed in the tomb, they had disbelieved that they had stolen the body to prove that you know to disprove that the resurrection mm -hmm. was real. Right. And so they figured, you know, somewhere along the lines, they want to keep an eye on that. Trying to cover their bases, maybe? Yeah. Wickedness. Yeah. If you remember back from Acts chapter 5, 
um, Peter and some of the other apostles were already delivered from prison by an angel in the middle of the night. You remember that? That's already happened you know, San, when the Sanhedrin pulled them in. So um, I'm sure that with the relationship that Herod has with, with the Jewish leaders of Sanhedrin, they would have told him, you might want to step up security. Call in Mike. We've got to make sure that this guy doesn't get out of here. Um, so basically what Herod's trying to do is Herod's just simply trying to prevent another miracle. Herod's trying to prevent another miracle. So let's see what happens. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And so just once more again, how many times are we seeing prayer just being of the action and the activity that these people were given over to prayer? They, they always took opportunity to, to come boldly before the throne. And so what we see with verse 5 here is really this battle uh, being set up for us here. The battle, Herod and his, his military power and, and, his, and his army versus the prayers of the saints. This is a little battle we have going on here. Let's see what happens in verse 6. It says, On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And so let's just stop right there and just note for a moment, what was it that Peter was doing the night of his execution? Peter's sleeping on the night of his execution. Um, you know, I just think that Peter has obviously come a long way in his faith. You know, Peter, this is not the Peter who was uh, going nuts on the boat, you know, in the storm. It's not the Peter who's denying the Lord with cursing, you know, at the thought of being arrested with Jesus. Peter's sound asleep um, to the point that he doesn't even, the angel shows up with the shining light as the angels are described a lot of the times. He doesn't even wake up for the shining light. The angel has to strike him on the side. He uses the, Peter was sawing some logs in there. Peter was just ready. You know, Peter wasn't worried. Yes, sir. Christ's lightness, Christ's lightness, because Christ yeah. was in the bow of the boat during a storm. Yeah. Didn't bother him. Yeah, fully resting yeah. and in the providence and sovereignty of God. Just whatever, Lord. Yeah, yeah he's sleeping <clears throat> the night. I mean, he knows he's about to be executed. James was just executed. It pleased the crowds. It's Peter's turn. They got to wait till the festival's over. You don't want to offend the Jews to murder somebody during the Passover. You know, so... He's just waiting for his, his death, you know. But, as it said, the church was fervently praying for him. Uh, let's pick up halfway through verse 7. It says, And his chains fell off. The chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together, and they were praying. 
And here I think it, here in the story I think it gets starting a little humorous even. It says, uh, and when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. And what's, the, I mean, what's funny to me, um, ironic even, is that we see the fervency of the prayers of the, the, the believers up in, this, uh, up in Mary's house. Uh, they're, they're fervently praying, I'm sure, for Peter's release. And then as Peter gets released, they don't believe it. You know, it's funny. It's, almost, it's, it's ironic, I think. Um, it's 150. If anybody's got kids that they need to pick up, Amy wants me to make sure we get there and get them. Um, but we, we got a few time here to, to finish up. Verse 16 says, But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. And so here, Peter's telling the church, report this news to James. Report the news of my release to James. Now, of course, this isn't the James that just got beheaded. That's not this James. Um, this James is, in fact, the Lord's brother, um, this, this, this uh, brother who, who apparently did not even become converted until after the resurrection. He's seen his brother resurrected from the dead and all of a sudden, that did it for him. He became a believer. Um, so this James had become really a, a prominent leader in the early church at Jerusalem. We'll see that in Acts 15 for sure. So Peter tells, uh, go tell James what's happened to me. James wasn't there with the church. I'm sure he was in hiding. Herod was trying to, to get all of the leaders of the church. He was, in, he was probably hiding out somewhere. And so he wants the message to go to him. Verse 18 says, Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. He's going to execute the guards who, who weren't able to keep Peter. And so here, once again, um, we really just see God just being sovereign in his, in his giving and taking of life. So far, we've seen God allow <coughs> Stephen to be stoned. And we've seen... Uh, We've seen James allowed to be beheaded. We've seen, on the other hand, Peter being saved. We see these guards who were probably just trying to do their job being executed. You know, God most certainly gives and takes away. And when rarely do we ever have um, actual insight into how God makes these decisions. For us, we're just called to be faithful. We're just called to, to trust in the goodness of God and to, uh, and to be willing to accept whatever <coughs> he sees necessary to further his glory. Um, so, so after all of this, after Peter's miraculous escape, um, Herod is going to leave Jerusalem. He's going to go to deal with another problem. Um, Luke actually just gives us a little um, history, a little even secular history of, of what all Herod was involved with. We'll skip down past that. Um, let's jump in here at verse 21. Jump in at 21. It says, On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, which is a throne, and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. 
and he was eaten by worms and died. And so Herod apparently filled up uh, the cup of his iniquity and God would not allow any more war against his people from Herod. God would not allow any more blasphemy of him accepting the praise of, of God himself. And so God sent an angel to kill Herod. And so we've seen many, uh, we've seen persecution of the church. We've seen um, the, the, the pushing out of the church from their home in Jerusalem, the scattering of them abroad, the dispersion of them. Um, we've even seen church members being killed uh, by the enemies of the gospel. But yet the most important thing of all of this continues. Verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Right at the end of the day, we're all dispensable. If God needs to kill any one of us at any time to further his gospel, to further his glory, to work out his plan of redemption, so be it. All that matters is that the word of God continues to spread so that God will be glorified. Right? That's, that's, that's the name of the game. Right? It's for us to submit to, to God's glory. Right? We decrease so that he can increase. That's the name of the game. So um, back there, now in verse 25, the last verse, uh, it tells us how Paul, uh, Barnabas and Saul are going to return from Jerusalem. Remember, they took down the gift. And there again, we get introduced to this man, uh, John Mark, who will, who will run into a very interesting fellow later on in the book of Acts. Um, but that's it for today. We, we pretty much hit right on time. Any questions before we, <coughs> before we run? No, nothing? Okay, that's fine. Fine with me. No stumpers. Um, well, let's pray. Let's pray and we'll go to worship. Well, Father, we thank you, God, for our salvation, first of all and foremost, for reaching down and, and, and doing what we could not, God, and giving us the grace and giving us the gifts of faith and repentance, God. We, we stand here based only on your work and your doing, God, and we thank you. Father, we pray that you would continue to pour out your grace and mercy on others, God, that we share the gospel with our family members, God, our children, um, even at young ages, God. We pray that you would, would grant them the ability to, to understand the gospel, that, that they would see their sin and that they would repent and believe in Jesus. Father, we just beg of you to save our children. And Father, I pray that you would save even some in our church today, some who come to our church, God, but are yet um, truly converted Father, I pray that all of theology they probably know, all of the doctrine they probably know, we pray that your spirit um, would give them a heart of flesh and would take out their heart of stone, God, that they would truly be regenerate and saved and, and, would, and would walk away from this building today um, having escaped the snare of the devil and, and having, been, uh, having their name written in the, in the book of life, God. We pray that you would work this miracle today in our midst and we pray for Pastor Emilio as he preaches. God, we pray that your word would be glorified, that you would be glorified through it. God, I pray that as a church, as we hear your word together, as we sit together and hear your word, we would all be unified in, in, in doctrine and in theology and our views of you. God, that as a church, we'd be unified in, in our understanding of the scriptures. God, so we just pray that you would bless this, this next following hour, bless our fellowship afterwards. Uh, may we have sweet fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.